Good morning, and welcome to Free to Be Faithful. I'm moderator Kip Allen. Free to Be Faithful is a religious education and awareness program created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in response to increasing governmental and secular incursions into religious life. Good day, and welcome to Free to Be Faithful. I'm program moderator Kip Allen. My guest today is Mr. Tim Gigline. He's the vice president of Focus on the Family and a Washington Observer, as well as a longtime friend of this program and a devout Lutheran. We've been keeping an eye on what's going on in the nation's capital and what is going on in the country, especially regarding religious liberty. And boy, do we have things to talk about. Tim, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Kip. Yes. Uh, you know, I remember the last time you and I had one of our great conversations. And uh, I, uh, I remember uh, near uh, to the end of that uh, conversation, uh, you said something like, we'll be in touch, time will tell, we'll see. And we were speaking, uh, you know, of the four religious liberty cases at the Supreme Court. Well, uh, the court term has just ended. Uh, we won three of those four cases, but the loss, the Bostock case, is one of the most uh, major losses for religious liberty in the history of the United States. Explain the Bostock case to the, to the audience. Yes, I'd be happy to explain it. Uh, the Supreme Court decided to take up, which is not unusual, three separate cases uh, at the same time, they are cases that were related, uh, but they were, uh, you know, separate cases, separate set of facts, separate parts of the country. And these cases, all three of them, turned on the question um, of discrimination in hiring and firing. And without going into the details of the three cases, the linchpin of the Bostock case, uh, is whether one of the titles that comprises the famous Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a title using the word sex. And in 1964, that word meant male or female for purposes of the application of federal law. Well, several groups have worked for several years to change that definition using the Supreme Court. They wanted to change the definition of the biological distinction between men and women. And what they were seeking to do, Kip, is to redefine the word sex to mean or to include sexual orientation or gender identity, otherwise known as SOGI. S-O-G-I. Now, the Constitution says that if you're going to change legislation, that is a job for the Congress, not for the Supreme Court. And in fact, both uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch and Chief Justice John Roberts, during their confirmation hearings in the Senate, both of them separately said they never wanted the Supreme Court to be a supreme legislature, that they only wanted the Supreme Court to be the Supreme Court, meaning, and what they meant at the time, 
is that the Supreme Court would interpret the law and not make the law. The Supreme Court would interpret the law and not impose the law. Deeply, unfortunately, uh, Justice Gorsuch, the newest uh, of two justices on the Supreme Court, nominated by Donald Trump, decided to join the four liberals on the Supreme Court and decided to negate or to throw off the legislative process and to broaden the definition of what sex means for purposes of federal law. And now, as a result, hiring, firing cases are rooted not just uh, in, in racial questions, but the sexual orientation, gender identity uh, elevation has been equaled with race. Uh, this is precisely, this is overwhelmingly uh, what President Trump and what all of the Republicans who voted for Justice Gorsuch did not want, because he had told them expressly that he did not believe that the Supreme Court should legislate from the bench. But unfortunately, this is exactly what happened in the Bostock case. Now, I think that we have a little bit of, um, I'm going to say wiggle room in here, uh, because one of the cases that was part of the Bostock case was Harris Funeral Homes, where there was a funeral director who one day goes in and says, hey, I'm really a woman, and I'm going to present as such. Harris uh, fired the guy, and of course, then the uh, thing went up to the court. The thing that that uh, was interesting when it came up to the Supreme Court was that Harris did not use the religious exception, uh, the religious exemption rule. They appealed it on other grounds. So the religious, uh, the religious exception rule was not really judged on. You know, I'm so glad that you said that because there are several titles, and I want to be very uh, careful here because I know we have a general audience uh, who overwhelmingly are not comprised of lawyers or Supreme Court judges. But we have uh, in federal law, in the Civil Rights Act, um, we have several titles uh, that comprise that act. And you are absolutely right, Kip, that in the Harris case, that was one of the three decisions uh, that I uh, mentioned earlier, you are absolutely right that there was not a pure application of religious liberty in this regard. And I'm an incorrigible optimist by nature. Uh, and so my great optimism is that, you know, is that that uh, negation, right, uh, of, uh, of applying religious liberty in this case may help us uh, down the line. The reason that I want to be careful here, however, is that having read this case, having uh, paid very close attention, not just to the Bostock case, but the Harris case and the, and, the, and the third case that I referenced earlier, having paid a lot of attention to the majority opinion, I'm, I'm very sorry to report that, uh, that Justice Gorsuch had the opportunity as the majority writer to further clarify these religious liberty boundaries. You know, every decision that the Supreme Court uh, issues is not necessarily a narrow uh, definition. Very often the court speaks more broadly 
or the court allows for a broader you know, debate over the case in the future. I'm sorry to report that although he had ample opportunity in the majority opinion, uh, Justice Gorsuch chose not to be uh, narrow. He chose to keep things broad. And this concerns me because there will be a series of case uh, law as sure as you and I are having this conversation today, Kip. Uh, and these cases that will be coming to the court probably as soon as the next two terms. They will not only look at hiring and firing. You can bet we're going to have more of those cases. But they oh, will yeah. begin to look at education. They will begin to look at housing. And the Supreme Court builds on its case law, on its precedents. And so the reason that I'm very concerned is that in the same way that a series of cases led to Roe against Wade, uh, which imposed legal abortion on all 50 states, in, a, in the same way that a series of cases, many of them discussed between you and I, you know, uh, over our friendship, that led to Obergefell, the imposition of a new definition of, uh, of marriage between people of the same sexes. The and warning was sounded on that in the minority report. Uh, I know absolutely that, uh, right. You're absolutely right. And, that's, and that, unfortunately, is where we are going in Bostock. Because Bostock, you know, as the Wall Street Journal said so well, you know, when it, it posed in an editorial, Gorsuch versus Gorsuch, the Gorsuch who testified in his confirmation hearings, and the Gorsuch who actually wrote uh, Bostock. Uh, and what the, what the uh, Wall Street Journal said, Kip, is we have, and I'm quoting them, an alien legal being seems to have captured the justice. I think that's exactly right. You know, what, what is happening here is we have a Supreme Court justice who has now proven that he is open not to originalism, not to textualism, not to what the words of the Constitution actually say. We know that he's now open to imposing new definitions uh, when it comes to, unfortunately, the restriction of our religious liberty. So it is for that reason, as a Christian, as a Lutheran, as a person who cares about Christian higher education, Christian parochial schools, paraministries, parishes, uh, soup kitchens, uh, adoption agencies, all run by Christians, what we are facing now is a Supreme Court that is open to, uh, to taking away and further limiting our religious liberty. And the Bostock case, and the reason we've spent so much time talking about this, the Bostock case is the number one case ever argued that allows the Supreme Court to further limit our religious liberty. It is scary. And there's another ruling I want to discuss that, uh, again, really bothers me. And that was the case of the Louisiana abortion law that, that uh, required that abortionists have admitting privileges at local hospitals. And the court ruled, well, no, that's unconstitutional. The thing that really bothers me on that is, over and above the obvious, is that the court largely relied upon a similar case in Texas. Uh, I think it was Whole Woman's Health versus State yes. of Texas. And what had happened there was that the uh, 
that that case was ruled unconstitutional. Now, I believe it was Justice uh, Justice Kavanaugh who, uh, writing a concurring report, he sided with the majority on this, but said that uh, well, he opposed the um, the Texas ruling at the time. He thought it was wrong. He still thinks it's wrong, but because it's precedent, he decided to support it. Yes, you're right. And may I say, Kip, it was it was the Chief Justice John Roberts who did that. I beg your pardon. It was Justice Roberts. Kavanaugh. And and, the, and by, may I say, the only reason I'm mentioning that uh, is because Justice Kavanaugh is the newest justice. And one of the things that a lot of us who are pro-life took heart from is that in the first major Supreme Court case on life, Justice Kavanaugh sided with the pro-life side, but. And this is the most important thing to say, confirming what you just said. The Chief Justice of the United States has changed his opinion on the pro-life question. With the Louisiana case, he is now firmly on the record of not having a categorically pro-life view at the Supreme Court. This is a deeply troubling development. Well, especially was, since he says it was based on a on a bad ruling. That's the thing that gets me. Simply because there's precedent doesn't necessarily mean it should stand. I mean, exactly look at right. uh, yeah. yeah, Brown versus Board of, of uh, Education overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, we look at uh, you know which which outlawed uh, uh, segregation, and there was a um, Gideon versus Wainwright, which was another one that uh, that upset a number of precedent rulings. Where the court said, I, yeah, I, we, I am we so glad that, 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 that you point this out, because there were a number of people who follow the court who kept saying, well, the Louisiana pro-life case, you know, you know, in its importance, is not, they kept saying, going to lead us any further uh, in the direction of overturning uh, Roe against Wade. And may I say, it's so important uh, you know, to 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 step over those kind of talking point views, and to your second point, Kip, to go directly to the opinion itself. And I read both the majority opinion and the chief justice's uh, concurring opinion. And very unfortunately, in the same way that the Casey decision in 1992 reconfirmed Roe against Wade. And by the way, every single one of the majority in the Casey decision in 1992, that terrible pro-abortion ruling that reconfirmed Roe against Wade, every one of the five justices were uh, nominated and confirmed by Republicans. And so we are now in another pattern where a chief justice who promised at his hearings uh, to call balls and strikes. Do you remember when he used that phrase? He said that yes, the role of a justice was to be like an umpire in baseball, not to make law, but to call balls and strikes. And to your point, Kip, if he felt, if he was troubled by an earlier uh, Texas law, he was not ethically or honor-bound to, you know, to make the decision that he did. And so presumptively, and deeply unfortunately, we now have at least five pro-abortion votes uh, on the Supreme Court. This is deeply troubling to millions of Americans. 
uh, you know, who heard so much debate in 2016 about the Supreme Court, you know, uh, after Justice Scalia. So to have Justice Scalia's replacement writing an opinion in opposition to our religious liberty and to have the Chief Justice of the United States, who took the place of the late great William Rehnquist, another pro-life Chief Justice, one of the two dissenters in Roe, is deeply, deeply uh, disturbing to millions of pro-life people like you and me. Well, Jim, let's move a little bit beyond the Supreme Court. Uh, One of the other programs I do is called Let's Talk, the Pastor is In. And I had a discussion with a pastor uh, last uh, in the last program about how the how Christianity in this in this country is now being subjected to active persecution. Things that we we just would not have imagined in the past. Uh, for example, one of the uh, talk show hosts, one of the uh, on um, MSNBC, a gentleman by the name of uh, Lemon actually came up and said, oh yeah, well we know that Jesus Christ was not a perfect human being. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) where did that come from? Obviously not from his knowledge of Christianity. Uh, But there's more and more and more that we're seeing uh, uh, governors and and local politicians saying, especially with the COVID-19 epidemic, that oh yeah, it's okay to go out there and protest, but you can't go to church. What is yeah, going on here, Tim? Yeah, you know, um, two, two comments, if I may. One, uh, uh, we are going to look backward at the COVID era, uh, and we're going to uh, have, I think, a major debate in American Christianity about what was the proper response. There are people of really goodwill, and they say that government is instituted by God, that one of the blessings of good government is our security and good health. And therefore, we should be open to justice, uh, and, and, and that justice sometimes gives us, gives us decisions by those who govern that is meant for our good welfare, even if we disagree. And there are a number of American Christians who said, you know, governors who are fearful of COVID, you know, mayors who are fearful of COVID, who, fear, who feel that they have a justifiable reason to limit uh, worship, uh, you know, that, 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 that we should listen to them and, and uh, you know, and, and, uh, and support uh, those decisions. And another side of American Christianity uh, concluded just the opposite that this question turns on justice and good government, and that these were not good decisions by governors and mayors, that they have no constitutional right at any remove to tell uh, anyone that they cannot go to church or sing in church, uh, etc. And this is a very substantial and sizable debate. And, I, and I, I dare say that, you know, 150 days into this, a number of people who were willing early on to be deferential to governors and mayors have learned that when you give government that much power, they will not only often take it and run, but they will expand those powers. And I think that that, what? frankly, is where we are at today. 
It goes even further than that, Tim. I'm thinking specifically of a New York Times article that was published, I believe, about a week ago. And the headline said something of the effect that uh, since the churches have reopened, there's been an explosion of uh, COVID-19 cases, 650. 650. There have been 3 million COVID-19 cases in the United States. Right. 650 have been linked to churches. That's all. Plus, the vast majority of those, in fact, I think nearly half of them have, been, have gone down to uh, one particular uh, Pentecostal church in Oregon. And yes. they're calling this a major, a major event? Come on. Right. No, I, 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 I'll tell you, Kip, um, I am so pleased that you're raising these issues because so very few people, uh, you know, with access to a microphone do. There is a phrase that I think has, uh, you know, earned its right to be the phrase of the year in America in 2020. Uh, and that phrase is cancel culture. It's the ability of some people to take it upon themselves to merely impose on other people uh, their uh, sense of what constitutes uh, free speech, free expression, uh, religious liberty, uh, and a host of other uh, of our constitutionally protected rights. And uh, it is it is uh, indisputable that, unfortunately, cancel culture is being applied overwhelmingly to the right of American Christians to express themselves, to speak, to worship, to gather. And as you say, uh, the kind of fake news statistics uh, are put out there um, as if they are absolutely the case. And unfortunately, we're going to see this increase and not decrease. It is indeed a very frightening and very uh, and very uh, discouraging event. I mean, for example, in, uh, in New York State, uh, when they were trying to track COVID cases, they said specifically that they would not ask people uh, who tested COVID who tested positive if they had attended any kind of a demonstration. But they would ask them if they went to church. And we've also run into situations where uh, certain areas that where a person is declared to have died of COVID if they happen to have been COVID positive, but were shot, <laughs> things along yeah. that line. You, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you said this. Um, and I'd like to open just one of the door, and our, I know our time is probably tight, but having lived and worked in Washington for over 30 years, uh, I can confidently tell you that this otherwise beautiful city is now unrecognizable. In our central core of the city, we have political slogans that have been painted on two of the major uh, roadways of our city. We have monuments and memorials and statues that have been vandalized and destroyed. We witnessed the dismantlement of America. We have uh, seen vandalism, rioting. We have seen the burning of one, uh, twice of one of the most uh, historically important churches in Washington. That church has been both burned and vandalized. It's called the Church of the Presidents, and it's right across the street from the White House. The Jersey barricades have been brought out, and merely as a tourist, a person who lives here, a pedestrian, is fully now limited in major parts of the city 
if people want to come here, bring their families, merely go out for uh, a walk, unfortunately, the the entire perimeter of Washington, D.C., uh, has been fundamentally changed. And it's unfortunate for a host of reasons. And not to lose the point, the fact that there is uh, one of the most important and historically important churches in the central core of Washington, a church where every president since James Madison, you know, has worshipped, that it could be burned and uh, graffitized and vandalized twice within the same month is absolutely unacceptable and inexplicable. Turning to scripture, I believe Jesus said that, you know, the world hate the world will hate you because they hated me first. And I think we're really seeing the uh, fruition of that prophecy of his. I, I must tell you, it was very difficult, and I, I know you um, loved and revered your father, a great World War II era uh, person. I had five uncles, uh, you know, who, uh, who were in World War II in both the Atlantic and Pacific. It was very difficult on the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day and, and the anniversary of D-Day in Washington uh, to wake up to the news that the World War II memorial had been vandalized, that the Abraham Lincoln Memorial on the Mall had been vandalized, that the Korean War Memorial, uh, we're, we're commemorating the 70th anniversary of the beginning of the Korean War this year, had been vandalized. I mean, uh, Kip, um, it really does hurt your heart and take your breath away that in this extraordinary and exceptional country that we could witness such things day after day. Tim, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And it is, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking, just absolutely heartbreaking to see that happen. And I just don't understand what these people are thinking. I'm reminded of my, fam of my favorite line from any uh, presidential uh, speech ever. It comes from George Washington's farewell address, which he uh, delivered on September 19th of 1796. And George Washington, our first president, uh, a two-term president, unanimously elected uh, each time, he said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. You know, John Adams, the second president, echoed that by saying, uh, you know, that the United States uh, and our Constitution was designed for a religious and a moral people. To your point uh, a moment ago, Kip, we are truly testing the, the guardrails and the pillars of our remarkable country. Well, Jim, what we can do is just uh, keep the faith. Know we that, can keep uh, the faith, we can pray, and we can engage like never before, because we're all tempted to despair, to discouragement, and to give up. But in fact, we are being called into the public square as Christians more than ever. Tim, thank you so much for your insights, which as usual are invaluable in trying to figure out what's going on in this country of ours, this country that is so blessed with so many ways, and yet we seem to see it almost falling apart. Thank you so much. We know that God is sovereign, and we trust him, and we serve a great God. So thank you so much for the honor of being with you. You've been listening to Free to be Faithful, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. 
Thank you for listening and supporting Free to be Faithful on Worldwide KFUO.